theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Amy. Good morning, Dr. Joy. How are you on this fall morning? It's definitely fall. <laughs> yeah, it, it hit the cold snap. We are staying warm inside. Yeah, but I, I'm doing wonderful this morning, and I am looking forward to our conversation this morning with Corey Williams. Now, Corey Williams is just a master of initiatives. He has uh, been involved with a number at his previous institution, and I've worked with him closely on an initiative that we have for academic attainment of inequity with the state of Illinois. And it's just been a really a treasure to work with him and his ideas, his perspectives. Uh, he brings such a wealth of information and passion to the yes. work he has with uh, the male initiative programs and mentorships. And, and you're absolutely right. He's my go-to person. I haven't had the opportunity yet to work on any initiatives with him, but he is my go-to person. I have had students with extreme situation from food insecurity to housing insecurity to abuse. And he has been my go-to person and the amazing things that students, freshmen in these situations are now sophomores and juniors. So they are making it because of the support that he has provided. So he is an awesome young man and I am looking forward to talking to him. His responsiveness to any question I've had is, again, like you said, just amazing. And it's like, I feel like students have a place at GSU because he creates the space for them. Right, he's like 911. <laughs> right. Corey Williams possesses a deep understanding of student development and a profound passion for serving underrepresented minority students. He's a native of Panama City, Panama, and he began his student affairs career more than 20 years ago. He's worked at both private and public institutions. Among the various areas under his purview are Academic Resource Center, Center for Student Engagement and Intercultural Programs, Career Services, University Housing and Auxiliary Services, Community Standards, Health and Student Counseling Center, College Pathways, TRIO Programs. Goodness, I mean, he has a wealth to bring to us today. 
In this position that he has now, he works closely with colleagues across the university to develop collaborative initiatives. Corey is in the process of completing his doctorate in educational leadership and he's focusing his research on the relationship between cultural-based mentoring and academic persistence in African-American and Latino male co community college students. Oh, goodness. There is so much more. Corey okay. Williams on. is amazing. <laughs> and I just want to put it out there that he is not available for hire. I don't know if he's av available for marriage, but he is I'm not available. Married as well. <laughs> married as well. So he, A, he is not available for marriage or for hire. He belongs to us. <laughs> and we are so happy that you are with us, Corey. And this is such an important topic. And it's one that I actually get emotional about. So I'll try not to get emotional through this interview. But I was reading some of the statistics from the National Center of Education Statistics about minority males, specifically black and brown males. And the stats are just amazing, aren't they? 21% of black males graduate in four years compared to 64, their counterparts of white males, 64%. And it doesn't get any better necessarily with six years. I mean, they really lag behind even black females as well. It's just amazing to me. I know I would tell my son, who is an amazing man, he's almost 30. He has an extremely successful career. And because of where he's at, I was like, you know, he can basically write his own ticket, you know, Corey, because he's so rare. And that's what he's doing. He's forging his pathway because he's like a diamond in the road. He's so rare. I know that there's a number of documented reasons contributing to these factors. Can, can you just share some of these major challenges of why we're seeing such dismal statistics? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you both for having me on the podcast this morning. Like you, this is something that I'm very, very passionate about. I've been passionate about this topic probably from the time that I was, uh, I completed my undergraduate degree. For me, it's important because I did not have the role model in my life. Um, there was no male of color that helped guide me. So I made a promise to myself that I would help as many men of color that were following behind me, just paying it forward. And I think that that's critical um, when discussing this topic. But to your question, why? There, there, there are, I think there are a myriad of issues. I think one of them is definitely the educational system, the K through 12 educational system for within those communities, in contrast to the educational systems within white, more affluent communities. So there's more of a tax base, there's more funding that's going through those communities, and within the marginalized communities, we're not getting as much taxes, right? One issue. Another issue, I think, just the, the, the neighborhoods by which we're coming from, right? We're dealing with gang violence. We're dealing with other socioeconomic topics or issues that, or barriers that are preventing us from focusing fully on school. Then, of course, there's the issue of the way black and brown men are treated in school as it relates to suspension rates, right? So we are suspended at a higher rate than white counterparts. So that's why I think when 
looking at programs like these, we need to focus on restorative justice practices, right? It shouldn't be as punitive, but practices need to be put in place that will help support them, that will help teach them, that will help lift these young brothers up as yes. opposed to penalizing them. I, and I agree, especially with P-12, and Amy and I, we see this in preparation of teacher candidates, and we are trying to increase the diversity, the number of teachers of color, because there's only 7% seven, 7% of teachers are African-American. Hmm. And, and what we're finding is it, it's because of the P-12 schools that they come from and that they're unprepared. And we know intellectually that they have these opportunities and these opportunities are stripped from them. So they're not necessarily given the resources by which they can pass these high stake tests and compete. But I also experienced this at my previous university with athletes. And it was just so heartbreaking for me. You see these wonderful athletes, they come in and they're excited. They've been accepted into college. And four years later, they've used up their eligibility, right? And they're not walking across the stage. And they're leaving the university without a degree and with debt. And so we try to put in things in place, male mentoring programs and all of that. And I know you've done that. So I want you to talk about your initiative with Triumph. Tell us about the purpose and the goals and tell us what you're doing with Triumph. I started Triumph at my previous institution back in 2013 or so. I saw that at that institution, minority males were graduating at a 6% rate, 6% two-year rate, Ouch. which was abysmal. And no one was willing to have that conversation about it. When I brought the issue up to my supervisors, they really did not feel that it was an issue that they wanted to tackle. I felt that as a black male, I needed to take on the mantle because no one else is going to do it. I requested funding from the institution. They did not provide funding specifically for that. So as a result, I had a budget for other initiatives. I carved out X number, a small amount, just to basically gather data by creating this program to disprove that this could be done, this method could be done. So within the first two years of the program, we saw a 90 plus percent graduation rate, and a 90 plus percent retention rate in two years. I was able to secure external funding. Since the, univer the, since the institution did not want to fund the initiative, I thought, well, let me see who else is willing to give us money. Initially, we started off with a small group of, of men. There were less than 20. By the time I left, we had 150 men that were part of the program at the, at the college. And because of the graduation and retention rates, I received more than $1.5 million in external funding to not only support the program at that institution, but also to replicate it at three other community colleges in the state of Illinois. That's amazing. Well, obviously, there's incredible impacts of this program looking at that graduation rate tell us a few more particulars what about the impacts of male mentors and how did you recruit so initially there weren't many 
men of color, faculty men of color on the campus, um, small group. So I had established relationships with them firsthand. So I reached out to them first. Then I connected with our alumni base. I looked out for alumni that were doing great work in the community. And I asked them to come back and serve as mentors to sort of pay it forward. That was easy for me. I think particularly within the black and brown community, the whole concept of helping the next person coming up is something that at least was ingrained in, in, in my life, in me. And I've seen that be a consistent message in a lot of the men that I have worked with, a lot of the mentors that I have approached. So they understand the, the importance of that. Within the community college system, there, there is no such thing as a fraternity. So in many ways, this replicated your traditional black or brown fraternities. It was a space for men to talk, men to gather, men to be encouraged by, or, or, or similar to the African tradition of having your elders speak to you uh -huh. and, and, and take, take heed from the lessons that they've learned in order to support you. So it was those two concepts that I sort of infused, the, the concept of the, the African-American or Latino fraternity, as well as the concept of African elders providing or pouring into the youth. Okay, so that was that motivation to make it more of a social group. And it's amazing the success you had with recruitment. So my husband for years, uh, he retired last year as a middle school teacher. He was also the football coach and the basketball coach. Uh, so he had it in good with the students, you know. <laughs> uh, but he ran uh, a male mentoring program for the eighth graders for years. And I think what he struggled with most is attracting males to the program. And I hate to put it like this, but he had what he would consider all the good boys mm -hmm. in his group. And it was great that he had them, but these are the parents that are really involved and they wanted their kids to be part of something social. So the parents were very supportive in making sure that their kids participated. But what he really wanted were the boys who were being suspended and who were on the fence. And it was hard reaching them and recruiting them. And he was trying to come up with ideas like, should it be mandatory if they received attention or suspension? Should it be mandatory that they participate? So he was going down that route. Talk about how you were so successful with recruitment and I also have another question, a follow-up question about when you think these initiatives should even start. Sure. So for me, I had a mix of guys that I recruited. So there were some guys, as the dean of students at that, at that institution, I was over um, the adjudication process, so um, student conduct. Any young man that committed an infraction that didn't necessarily warrant their expulsion from the institution, I would mandate a sanction for them to become part of the program, for them to make it right within the institution. So that was one portion. Then there were students that were high achieving students that just sort of needed some guidance, some professional development. So putting them both together, what I noticed would happen was that the high achieving students a lot of their study habits, a lot of their skills would rub off on the other students because they were spending so much time together. Part of the program, the students had to meet for 
at least an hour and a half per week collectively. And we would discuss issues that impacted men of color as a society. Then they would meet weekly with mentors, with their assigned mentors, to discuss their academics, personal issues. And then we also incorporated study hours for the men to sort of get together. Um, we would bring in tutors to work with them. We would facilitate workshops on financial aid, career, career development. And then there was a service piece, which is critical. And that goes to your, your, your second question. We worked with our local middle and high school students. So my guys would in turn become mentors to the high school students. And then the high school students that we trained to become mentors would then also serve as mentors to the middle school kids. So there was a, I don't like using the term pipeline necessarily, but that's sort of what it was. So we were actually working with kids as early as six years old. Oh my goodness. It sounds like a great empower, like you were empowering them, like Absolutely. an empowerment program. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's important that for kids to see what they can be. And if they don't have that model, it's difficult for them to manifest that reality. Oh, indeed. I agree. It's starting young is so important. Now, this was a, an extremely successful program at your previous institution. Describe your continued work with equity and academic attainment and achievement in your current position? In my current position, I served as the inaugural um, chief diversity officer for the institution. So equity for me is a part of who I am. My background lends to that. I'm a first generation immigrant. Spanish is my first language. I moved to the United States at the age of 10. I'm a US veteran. Equity is at my core. That's, that's what I breathe. Bringing initiatives that would bring to light or to focus the disparities that exist within the black and brown communities is important to me. So we're a part of an organization through the uh, Partnership for, for College Completion called ILEA. That's the Illinois Equity and Attainment Program. Um, and that is a group of 30 plus colleges and universities within the state that are focused on chipping away or addressing the racial and social economic disparities within the state of Illinois for marginalized students here in the, in the state. So that is something that um, we're part of that meant creating or being a co-author of our equity plan, which is part of one of the, the products that we've got, we have to produce as an institution to make sure that we're doing what, what we are charged to do within a five-year period. And that's to chip away again at the disparities within these institutions. Um, working with individuals like Dr. Frank Harris to address or look at the issues here at GSU from an equity lens. So taking a look at our equity scorecards or how our students are performing in gateway courses, right? And having honest conversations with faculty and staff about some of the issues that our students are facing prior to even entering the classroom and, and creating tools for us to work with those students. Right, and you mentioned just some of the things before they even get to the classroom. The fact that some cities have safe passages to school, some people can't even relate to that. All the baggage that they come with prior to school. So I know this is near and dear to your heart. So what is the detriment of not having support of programs like this? 
That's a good question. <laughs> That's a very good question. I think we need to think about the big picture, right? As our country's racial and ethnic makeup increases, I think colleges and universities have to be more successful at, at engaging and retaining students of color. I think considering the impact that undergraduate degrees have on upward mobility, institutions of higher education must pay special attention um, to these underrepresented students. Knowing that individuals who complete college degrees have higher earning potentials, right? And that is a direct reflection on the institution. Um, they have a better understanding of civic issues and they have an overall better quality of life. So I think it's important that we, we start thinking about these initiatives early on for those reasons. It is an individual attainment to have a higher earning power. Mm -hmm. But like you said, the civic engagement component of that is, is valuable. If someone has a higher earning potential, they are also feeding back into their communities. So I think that part of the cycle gets lost sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yes, these are incredible initiatives and very important. How do you get support for them? And maybe a follow-up to that would be, how might someone looking to get an initiative off the ground get administration support? I think it all goes back to the data. I think it's important that you have those honest conversations. And oftentimes those conversations are difficult, right? If you show your administration how your students are actually faring. If you break it down in a way that you're not just, you're focusing on particular groups of students. You're, you're focusing on your, and it's not just your traditionally racially marginalized groups. You're also looking at students that may come from low socioeconomic backgrounds, so your Pell eligible students. Um, you're looking at your students that may deal with, with some disability issues, right? So you're looking at those populations and you're disaggregating the data based off of those individual groups. And you're showing them, well, these are, these, this is why these, these types of initiatives are so important because the numbers reflect that our students are not faring as well as those students that aren't in those groups. So I think being fully transparent. And also, I think it's also important that you, you have a champion. Right. A champion who actually believes in the mission and is uh, is willing to do the work and not just talk about it. Yeah, that's what I always say. You have to have a champion. Like we are starting Junior Student Education Association, a pipeline into teaching for middle school and high school. And Amy's going to be the champion of that. I mean, in a champion, you have accountability there, right? right? And you know who's responsible. And so they have some kind of obligation. And speaking of obligations, at the university level, do you think that it should be a requirement for students to participate in programs like this? I mean, so you have athletes, so you have some captive groups, right? Mm -hmm. So you have athletes, for example. Do you think at any point this should be required for any students? I, I, I don't think that it should be a requirement for any and all students, but for certain student groups, yes. And, and what about those who are going through this restorative justice who may have had some infraction and maybe this an, an alternative to what could happen? Oh, absolutely. So in that case, yes. Or even those students that may not have fared as well 
transitioning from high school to college, they're on that bubble, maybe requiring or offering that additional support would help improve their grades if you've got a structured program in place to help support them. So for those students, student athletes, yes, students that have committed infractions, and then of course those students that want it. Let's not forget those students as well. And it can be so difficult when you're at a commuter college or university, right? Because they have all these outside obligations. Mm -hmm. But they are looking for social activities. Mm -hmm. They are looking for ways to connect. And I think if I could do what I did at a community college, which is strictly commuter-based, and it's being replicated at several other community colleges with great success, I think a model like that can be replicated at a four-year institution that is similar, has a similar population in terms of commuter versus res residential students. So it can be replicated. Absolutely. So let's talk about replication. Sure. What elements do you think are essential mm -hmm. to replicating a, a positive initiative such as the male mentorship that you've um, Definitely having a champion, having some sort of structure. There needs to be for many students, this is the first time they've ever experienced structure, right? So creating, creating structures for them. I think creating those workshops, bringing them into, or bringing them into the creation of the program, making sure that their voice is heard in terms of what they want to talk about is critical. I think partnering with your academic counterparts Oftentimes, I would reach out to certain faculty members and say, hey, if you have any students or if you, you, if you identify a student that you think could benefit from this program, have them come talk to me. Let me connect with them. Building those relationships. So that, that's critical. And definitely having the financial support one way or, an, or, one way or another. You know, if you can either get external, external funding or if you can get funding from your administration, even if it's a small amount, to study effects of having a program like this on the institution, the benefits. And then should the results warrant the expansion and having the um, administration commit to funding that, that's something that I would do as well or that I would encourage doing. And I was going to say that most important, having a blessing administration. And, and before we go, Corey, I just wanted to touch on a slightly different subject. I know we're talking about minority males. Mm -hmm. You and I, we've actually experienced that we have minority women mm -hmm. with hardships. And we have students in general. There's, so, you know, college students in general with hardships. But you and I have actually partnered together on working with uh, females mm -hmm. and hardships. And many of those females come with additional challenges where they have children mm -hmm. and they suffer with food insecurity and housing insecurity. And your job, I mean, it's just. Yeah. So I, I, I sent you information on the male mentoring initiative that I started, but a year and a half after I started the male mentoring initiative, I started an initiative for women as well. So this initiative was called SURGE. I love acronyms and I love having powerful words to it. So this is the sisterhood of undergraduates um, representing great excellence, right? So I use the model that I did for Triumph for Surge. But for the Surge programs, these were young women that were either in a technical or a career-focused program 
who were experiencing difficulties. So these were a lot of these were, were single mothers who were in these programs in order to join the workforce rather quickly. In order for them to join the workforce, they had to be successful in college, right, and complete their programs. And, and at the same time, balancing with whatever issues they were dealing with at home. So we made sure we replicated that. And that program was, we had women of color that uh, faculty and staff that served as mentors over that program as well. So I'm also going to be looking to create something similar to that here at this institution as well. Yeah, and I, I wish we had more time and we'll have to have you back again, but I do have a question. Amy likes to ask this final question, but I do have a couple of questions, quick ones. Mm -hmm. about the significance of having faculty look like students that represent the ethnicity of the students. And I think that that's so important because when they are insecure or unsure, they're looking for someone that may be able to relate. And maybe the first thing they see, you know, they, they're looking with their eyes, so they look for color of someone who can relate. How important do you think it is for students to see someone that looks like them? It is very important. I think I, I referenced that earlier. It's important for them to see what they can be. So oftentimes they see a faculty member in their present state, but not realizing that that faculty member may have struggled the same way that they did. And I always share my struggles with my students. And I told them I didn't even know I could be a teacher because it wasn't until after graduate school that I had ever had a minority teacher before. And that's pretty sad. The other question I have, and you made a point about having some things that are grounded in research. There's a lot of material out here, you know? So there's information out here. If someone is interested in starting a program that there's a lot for them to lean on. You know, there's a lot of things for them to replicate. I also believe that Obama, he put a lot of things in place too for male mentoring. There, there are a lot of initiatives out there. One of the things that I noticed though, when I was coming up with the program, there were a lot of initiatives for four-year institutions out there, but there weren't any four community college students. And that's one of the reasons why I felt it was important to create something. There's your Men of Distinctions programs, MOBs, your Brothers Keeper initiative. So there are a lot of models out there. I encourage your listeners to connect with partner institutions to see how you can either replicate programs that they may already have or work together to create something for the greater good, right? So within the, the, the replication of the programs that I have here in the state of Illinois, we're looking to successfully graduate at least 3,000 men of color in a five-year period within two years. So if they start out at the two-year community college, they will graduate within two years. But we're looking for at least 3,000. That's part of the grant. Those are the numbers that the funder is looking to see. And we're well on track to doing that. Oh, that's amazing. I'd love to hear that you're on track. Uh, <laughs> that, that's showing that there are people who have the goal, who want to complete, they just need additional support, someone who can kind of guide them along the right way to get to their destination. 
And from a practical standpoint, and like at GSU and maybe at other institutions too, thinking about where students would go to find additional resources for programs such as this. What are those keyword searches that you would recommend? Um, definitely Student Life, Office of the Dean of Students. Here at GSU would be the Center for Student Engagement and Intercultural Programs. Um, so anything like that, or even just keywords, male mentoring initiative or male mentoring or men of color programs. So anything like that would be a, a good way for students to sort of find programs to support them. Excellent. And I always like to end with some theoretical and maybe practical standpoint as well. Who do you lean on in your <laughs> research? Like what are some big names that you can point us to or some uh, bedside reading for uh, us to explore? Your Frank Harris, Dr. Frank Harris, I mentioned him earlier, Dr. Luke Wood, um, Dr. Sean Har Harper. These are giants in, in this field. So they focus not only on African-American male, but men of color at both the four-year and two-year level. So if I, I would definitely recommend picking up any of their literature, and there's a lot of stuff out there that they've written. Excellent. Our listeners will be doing that <laughs> as will we. It has been wonderful talking to you today, Corey. I appreciate you being here with us and I know we have a lot more to talk about. Yes. And it's been an amazing morning. So we really look forward to it, to seeing you again, Corey. Thank you both so much. And thank your listeners for taking the time to listen to me this morning. Amy, that was an amazing conversation with Corey Williams. Joy, I am so glad we had the opportunity to talk to Corey Williams today. He is absolutely amazing. He is my 911 for every student issue. And we've had so much success, students who deal with food insecurities and homelessness and all these issues. And I am just amazed that they are persisting through college in spite of their circumstance. But he's amazing. So here's some takeaways that I got from the conversation. And I, we like to give some takeaways at the end. He said we should start as early as possible, as young as six years old talked about how do you get how do you recruit how how do you get young men to be interested in something like this that's helpful for them they kind of make it a social event you you make it sort of like a frat and then you include all these empowering elements to it and i think what he said about restorative justice is so important because this gives them a different path that's also an opportunity for some who may have infractions, another way that they can go through this program. Right, take the punitive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Absolutely. He's, he did say colleges and universities have to be more successful at supporting people of color. And we know, especially with Latinos, that is our fastest growing population. So we have to get it right. We have to have a champion, right? So we know that all too well for accountability, for it to work, for someone to look at, and he is definitely our champion. It has to have structure, so it can't be willy-nilly. It has to be a full program, and there are so many other programs that you can replicate to build your own. It's great to partner with the academic side. You can't be an island, 
You know, you can't be an island in this initiative. You have to work with faculty. And even a small amount of funding can get you started. One thing he said that if you have a small amount of funding, use that funding for research to learn how to build your programs. And then something I think useful for parents, for any parent who's sending their child to college, tell your child to find the Dean of Students or those success programs. If they find that office, that office can lead them to anywhere else that they need to go. Oh, and I agree. We have uh, so many students who are returning after um, being out in the workforce and they're career changers or they're returning to school for additional credentials or to finish that degree. And they often need that support. So they need to be seeking out the DM students, those student services to get the support that they need to finish. And I want to just say that we need to have him on the program at least a couple more times. We'd even get to talk about a lot of the different programs he's putting into place. Take care, Amy. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.